Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked's editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. It's been another extraordinary week in British politics so we're going to devote another whole podcast to the latest in Brexit. Coming up we'll discuss the votes and the protests in Parliament, the legal challenges and what deal might Boris Johnson be working towards. You guys should get out of London and go and talk to people who are not rich Remainers. The advice given by the government to prorogue Parliament was unlawful. It represents an act of executive fiat. They cannot hide forever. I suggest they come to the country where they will discover we are disgusted by their behaviour. So, Brendan, let's start at the beginning of the week. Prime Minister Boris Johnson fails for the second time to get the two-thirds majority he needs in Parliament to call a general election. After that, Parliament's prorogued and you have this extraordinary spectacle of MPs holding up signs saying, silenced. Some MPs try to physically block the Speaker from leaving to prevent the official end of the parliamentary session. I mean, what did you make of all of this? I thought it was absolutely grotesque. I mean, I flitted between laughing at it because it was so infantile and hilarious that all these MPs who've spent the longest parliamentary sessions since 1651 (laughs) doing absolutely nothing suddenly complaining about the fact that they've had four or five days removed from them. So it was just utterly infantile, utterly unconvincing. And I'm sure most people around the country are laughing at these people. And I flitted between that and then also thinking these people are actually really uh, grotesque, the way they're behaving uh, in Parliament. Um, you know, if you look at someone like Clive Lewis, who was holding up his silent sign and hurling himself towards the Speaker to protect his anti-democratic saviour from being taken out <laughs> of the chamber... Um, you know, if you, it, it, Clive Lewis's face in that photograph is just smugness personified and Caroline Lucas with him and all these people. These are people who want to destroy the largest democratic act in the history of this country. So the idea that they are standing up for democracy, I mean, it, it's amazing they've managed even to convince themselves of mm. this. They certainly haven't convinced many other people. So I thought the whole thing was really horrible. And the silenced thing in particular with them holding up these signs was particularly off because, as you say, just a couple of hours earlier, they had voted for a second time to silence the people by blocking a general election. So what we have in Parliament at the moment is this utterly exhausted, decadent, out-of-touch, unrepresentative political elite doing everything it can to stitch up the vote for Brexit blocking the public from having any say on that process by blocking a general election and then presenting themselves as the victims. I mean, I really do think this will go down in history as one of the most ridiculous and grotesque moments in the history of the House of Commons. I mean, I thought it was interesting, as you say, they they are probably struggling to convince themselves because I've noticed that they use the words, our democracy. They can never bring themselves to say they're defending actual democracy, (laughs) democracy, which tends to mean one person, one vote, or the people having power. We know that's not what they're defending. They're defending the rights of a tiny minority of people, 650 elitists in Parliament, to have their say and use their power to overturn our vote, essentially. I mean, Ella, what what did you make of um, this spectacle? Well, I think they're becoming far more open about the fact that they are differentiating between their understanding of democracy and and the mass understanding of democracy. In fact, actually was put perfectly by Amber Rudd this morning. We're talking on Thursday morning on the Today programme. She was 
asked by Nick Robinson about, you know, the fact that she'd made this, she's left the Conservatives, she's made this big stand, she's been applauded for it. And she, he said, well, how do you come to some kind of a compromise? And it was quite remarkable what she said, actually. She said, some people, all they care about is the referendum, you know, as if that is, <laughs> as if that is a wrong position. Mm. And then she said, um, and some people, meaning her and her colleagues, think that MPs can correctly interpret democracy. Now, wow. that's really shows you their kind of thinking, which is, uh, we've talked about this, the kind of Birkin understanding of an MP's role on the podcast before, but it's become very explicit to the point at which we outside the halls of Westminster have absolutely no capability of understanding what democracy is because we're obsessed with this ridiculous referendum, which didn't really mean anything advisory, blah, blah, mm. blah. And they, the MPs who can see into the future in their crystal ball of Operation Yellowhammer <laughs> or whatever they're calling it, are the ones who are correct, who can correctly interpret. Now that tells you exactly where we're at with British politics. And, and I think, yeah, it's, it, it, you're, you're absolutely right that it has become more explicit. I mean, we know that the Lib Dems, for instance, are the anti-Brexit party. There's no hiding it. But even they actually, it was the first time this week that they said their position is to straight up revoke Article 50. None of the pretense of the second referendum that has been going on for the past three years. You know, we had the Labour deputy leader, Tom Watson, usually um, promoting lies and fantasies, but has given that up for the day to turn against Brexit. He said, for instance, that the 2016 vote is no longer valid. And you can you can see that... They don't even feel as if they have to dress it up in the language of a second chance, a confirmatory vote. Mm. It's just straight up no longer, um, they no longer recognise the result. Absolutely true. It, I mean, it's quite terrifying when you think about the situation that we have a political class which can openly talk about voiding the largest vote in the history of this country. And they wouldn't only be voiding 17.4 million votes, they'd also be voiding the 16.1 million remain votes, which were made in good faith on the understanding that they had real meaning and mm. that they were part of a serious democratic process which would be acted upon. And I think when you look at someone like uh, Tom Watson saying that the result is no longer valid, or even worse, Joe Swinson saying that her party, if it had any influence, would unilaterally override the vote for Brexit. Those are the words of tyrants. I mean, Joe Swinson might not look like a tyrant, she might not sound like a tyrant, but if you want to unilaterally overthrow an act of democracy, you are behaving in a tyrannical way. You at least have tyrannical aspirations. The fact that they can openly talk like this shows how, how little regard they have for real democracy, democracy in the sense of people power and the people uh, making decisions that politicians then have to push through. They have no regard for that concept whatsoever. So that's a pretty terrifying situation. And I think what we are witnessing, I think Ella's absolutely right. They have an understanding, a very narrow understanding of parliamentary democracy as a system of kind of filtered and tempered representation, which means that really they make the decisions. And if they think we've made the wrong decision, they will override it. That's how they view parliamentary democracy, which is not an accurate description of parliamentary democracy, by the way. It's a very narrow interpretation of it. But what that overlooks is that the referendum was a very clear case of parliamentary sovereignty being outsourced to the people. It was mm. a clear act of direct democracy. We were told that the people were in charge and we were told that the people would be obeyed. So they're all completely backtracking on that and um, refusing to do what they said they were going to do. So 
the issue I have is that this parliament now feels increasingly illegitimate. It feels mm. like an illegitimate, undemocratic parliament. I know we technically voted for it in 2017, but we did so on the basis of manifestos that said we would leave the European Union and respect the referendum result. They've now torn those manifestos to shreds. And in a country that doesn't have a written constitution, a manifesto is really one of the only bonds that we have with a political party. It's really one of the only forms of direct democratic accountability we have. We can refer to the manifesto and say, what about this? They've completely shredded those. So this parliament, and as we've pointed out on Spike, lots of people were elected for one party and now sit for another party. Yeah, This parliament feels like it shouldn't be there anymore. It feels like it's not a democratic body. And I think the sooner we have a general election so we can clear the trash out, the better. For the first time, I understand what Trump meant when he said drain the swamp. Uh, and I'm sure lots of people around the country feel similarly. Yeah. The, the other aspect to the Remainers' alleged defence of democracy is their use of the law courts. Now, this week we found out in, in the Scottish courts that Boris's prorogation was deemed to be unlawful. Now, the Remainers celebrate this as a great victory for democracy over an overbearing executive but that's not quite accurate, is it? I mean, Ella, what was your take on this? Well, it's hard to have a take because this is such an unholy mess um, <laughs> of dem- just an insult to democracy left, right and centre. I mean, the funny thing is that Gina Miller, the infamous Brexit hater businesswoman uh, who's always <laughs> on the television kind of flipping her hair and talking about how much she hates Brexit, didn't manage to get her legal challenge to. She was pipped to the post by Scotland. I'm sure she's pretty sour about that. <laughs> but this whole question of whether Boris Johnson's prorogation was legal or whether it was right has been conflated. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ruling, it has to go to the Supreme Court, but the ru- ruling is made on the basis of that it was directly political. So it wasn't just a standard procedure, That it, even though it was as Brennan pointed out, only five days or so longer than usual and blah, 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 that actually it was done for political means. And I think all of us <laughs> know that it was mm. done for political means. Yeah. And I think you'd be a bit stupid and naive to suggest that it wasn't. And it's it's embarrassing watching conservatives kind of cravenly try to claim this is just standard procedure because it isn't and we're not in standard times. However, on the other hand, the motivations behind the people who are pushing for these legal rulings are crystal clear. It mm. is to stop Johnson from going for a no deal. That's explicit. Gina Miller's explicit about that. All the people who are backing the legal challenges are explicit about that. The terrible thing for those of us who don't get to make rulings in court and who don't get to bust into parliament and make speeches is that politics has been taken over either by prime ministers or politicians who don't seem to respect democracy in its entirety, or even worse, judges who are using their power to clamp down on our political desires. So it's bad either way you look at it. Yeah, and, and there is absolutely no question. I mean, it's it's extraordinary to see all these politicians come out and say, oh, we cannot question the integrity of the judges. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to question the integrity of the judges <laughs> right here and now because this is an explicitly political ruling. Even the, the High Court case that Gina Miller lost you know, the judges actually said that they had to throw out the case because it was an invitation for the judiciary to exercise, and I quote, a hitherto unidentified power over the executive branch of the state and its dealings with parliament. You know, in other words, the the London court recognised that this case was um, legal overreach, whereas the Scottish court has decided to go along with it. 
And even if you read the judgments of the Scottish court, it's clear that in order to reach their ruling, they had to second guess the motives of the prime minister. Now, as it happens, it's pro- they probably second guessed it correctly, as you as you alluded to, Ella. But it's just absolutely crazy to see the courts interfering in democracy in this way. And there is nothing democratic about it. We've been critical of royal prerogative powers on spikes, quite rightly, because they are, you know, essentially fiat powers of the executive. But to take those powers from the elected government and hand them to the unelected judiciary is not progress at all. It's the opposite of of progress. Yeah, I I actually think it's really, it's incredibly sinister what's happening because unelected judges are being invited to determine what's right and what's wrong in politics. And that's not their job. In a democracy, that's the job of the people. And what we have is this new class of technocratic politicians and their cheerleaders in the media who are depriving the people of a voice by continually blocking a general election and empowering the voice of judges. So they want to shut up however many voters there are in the country. They want to shut us up and listen to three judges, three Mm. old men or, or women who they think are wise and should tell uh, the government what it should do. It's really sinister. It's really, to put it mildly, an improper use of the law to explicitly political and authoritarian ends. You know, when we voted for Brexit in 2016, many of us thought that the establishment would prevent it from happening. Mm. Um, and we didn't think that because we were cynical. We thought that on the basis of evidence and observation after what had happened in Ireland and the Netherlands and France and other countries that dared to vote against the EU. So we all thought it wouldn't happen. We thought the establishment would close ranks against it. But even I didn't imagine they would do it to this extent. Mm. I didn't imagine they would do it so tirelessly, so doggedly for and and spend all of their political lives devoted to preventing this thing from going through to such an extent that they are willing to drag down every single institution in the country if it means stopping Brexit. So they've completely hollowed out Parliament. They've completely destroyed the moral authority of Parliament in the eyes of the public by using Parliament as a tool against the democratic wishes of the people. Now they are poisoning the judiciary by Mm. explicitly politicising it and using it as a weapon against the will of the people. And you just wonder what they are going to drag down with them next. So the hysteria of these people, their anti-democratic hysteria, I think is reaching fever pitch. And it does make me quite worried about where they're going to take this country. And they, it seems like they want to take it away from the era of democracy into something quite different. Well, you could really see those kind of authoritarian instincts come out when, at the weekend, Lord Macdonald, former director of um, public prosecutions, suggested that potentially we could see Boris Johnson in jail mm. if he refused to obey the diktats of Hillary Benn's bill that blocked no deal. I mean, the excitement of the Remainers, you know, at, the, at this prospect, fantasising about um, locking up this criminal punishing the bad Brexiteers and suppressing this, you know, horrible outburst of democracy that we've had in recent years was really, really shocking. It's like they are making a criminal offence to be a Brexiteer. Mm. I know that sounds extreme, but if you think that Brexit means fully leaving the European Union completely, what is now referred to, as Ella points out in her piece this week, just no deal. That's how Brexit is now discussed. And that's pretty much what Brexit is. It's, It's no deal. If you are someone who thinks that's something we ought to do, 
you have basically been criminalised. Parliament has made it against the law to pursue a no deal. As you say, Fraser, Remainers openly fantasise about jailing anyone who defies the Ben Bill and tries to seek a no deal. And now with the judges getting involved, people are saying, you know, watch what you say, watch what you do, because the judges are going to tell us whether it's right to prorogue Parliament, whether it's right to do this, that and the other. It might not become a crime to be a Brexiteer, but that's what's in their minds. Mm. I mean, this is the level they've reached. They've reached such an extraordinary level of insanity almost that they do fantasise about locking up people who simply want to adhere to the result of 2016. It's extraordinary. Ella? The interesting way of looking at this, I think, is looking at through the eyes of what the Labour Party's doing mm. and their approach to it, because um, while they're not exactly, as Brendan says, not exactly calling for people to be criminalised in relation to Brexit, their approach to the vote and especially their approach to the Leave side of the argument is really interesting because, you know, I think we laughed last week on the podcast about their confusion around the fact that they're going to respect the referendum by having their customs union single market deal and then once they get it, go back and vote against it and I'm already confused but that, yeah, people have been laughing about that rightly so for a week. But if you listen to Labour Party politicians describing their position, they always end the interview by saying, of course, I think that Remain is the best option. Mm -hmm. I know that Remain is the best option. My conscience tells me, and that is what I am going to do. They, they just will not give any ground, not only to the fact that this was a referendum that was won by the other side, by Leave voters, but that a Leave position is in any way credible. It's now seen as like you're a lunatic yeah. if you support leaving the European Union. And I mean, to give credit to the debate, three years ago, it really wasn't like that. Yeah. I mean, it really has changed because yeah. we, if you look at the different ways in which especially something like No Deal has been talked about, and this is what I tried to highlight in my column this week, is you started off by people saying, well, this, was, this did, wasn't even in existence. We were talking about a deal. Then it's concocted by the failure of Parliament to do anything in relation to Brexit. And then they turn it into this like toxic thing, mm. this thing that would spell deaths of British people. And so that kind of escalation is has run parallel to their fear and parallel to their distancing from the people. I mean, it's remarkable how much Parliament has turned and politics has turned into a spectator sport. This is the depressing thing, is that you just have, we just have no input from the outside, really have no input. It's why it's so scandalous that MPs have voted against having a general election because it really is just completely in their hands and they've warped it and warped it and twisted it so that Brexit has now become this unfathomable, irrational, ridiculous and evil thing. I mean, yeah. it really is talked about in moral terms. If you support the concept of Brexit, it means you support cancer patients not being able to get their treatment and old people dying in the cold. I mean, yeah. you are an awful person if you support it. So it's remarkable how they've managed to make that twist. It, I think uh, the point about the Labour Party is really important because they're playing a really important role in response to all of this, especially the more radical wing of it, in fact, the Corbynistas. And this, the amazing thing about Corbyn, I mean, it's not amazing in a sense, we all knew this was going to happen, but they've gone from being these kind of pseudo-Marxist radicals to being the foot soldiers of um, the establishment and the foot soldiers of ensuring that we preserve the status quo, they all now fully line up with the idea of a second referendum. They all want Remain on the ballot paper, not realising that if you have another referendum with Remain on the ballot paper, you are voiding the first referendum. You are voiding millions and millions of votes. You are denying the voices of the working classes who voted in very large numbers to leave the European Union. And they are criticising people who criticise the judiciary, 
They are lining up with Blairites. They're lining up with business people. Lining up to shake the hand of John Burko. They're, and his boots. they're, they're <laughs> loving John Burko, horrible old um, right wing guy. Um, it's it's really quite amazing what's become of these people. I mean, they've gone from being, you know, I'm literally a communist, as one of them infamously said, to being literally the young saviors of the establishment and mm. the protectors of the neoliberal EU and an out-of-touch parliament and the Blairite elites, all of whom who want to overthrow the vote for Brexit. It's quite tragic in a way and also quite funny at the same time. But I think one important role they're playing in order to cover up this fact is that they're on the streets mm. having these stupid little protests about stop the coup, by which they mean Boris Johnson's alleged coup rather than the actual coup that's been carried out by the rest of the establishment against the people. And what that does, it provides a radical gloss and a radical cover to what is the least radical thing that's happened in British politics in 50 years, which is the overthrowing of the public vote for Brexit. So they're playing a really horrible, disgusting, cynical role in lending the glamour of radical protest to an establishment that wants to crush the democratic will of the people. So What's happened to Corbynistas in particular, I think, is really worth thinking about and talking about just to remind them that their party is the party of the few, not the many. And that's a, a really important message to drill home, especially if it means we can discourage people from voting for Labour. But sadly, they are not the only side of politics that are trying to do down the will of the people. I mean, we've been very uh, Boris sceptical on this mm. um, podcast. And I think it was really, really disappointing to see him this week describe no deal, which, as we've said a million times, is, is the best deal on offer. He described it um, in Ireland as a failure of statecraft. And, you know, of course, MPs have already voted to block no deal and want to force an extension. The reports coming from talks between Johnson and Brussels seem to be that even the hated backstop that is going to be the basically the, the basis for um, his new deal, the removal of the backstop, even that is not going to fully happen. There could just be a Northern Ireland only backstop. So he's just going to return to us with a kind of, um, you described it, Ella, as a Frankenstein's version of May's deal, as if that deal wasn't Frankensteinian <laughs> enough. So on both sides of the, you know, the Labour-Tory divide, democracy is slowly being suffocated and we're really being screwed here. Yeah, well, this is the delusion, unfortunately, on both sides, even the most screwed on Brexiteers seem to be misunderstanding Boris Johnson's intentions mm. and all the hype about no deal that you hear every day, the panic about it, is all a delusion, not just because, as we've argued, the actual ramifications of no deal you can call into question, but also that it's just the most unlikely thing to happen. And that's a terrible fact because there is just no way that Boris Johnson either has the political will or the strategy or the space at this point to make it happen, unless he completely sacrifices his political career and dies on his sword and becomes a martyr for Brexit, this no deal is not going to happen. He's going to find some way of getting through a withdrawal agreement that was always his aim because he doesn't want to be the principled man of democracy. He mm. wants to be a politician in power, as do, by the way, every single other politician in the House of Parliament. None of them have any principle in relation to this. 
this is this is the radical element, the exciting for us anyway, element of Brexit, that it could never cohere to a simple policy structure. It could never be a tick box affair. It couldn't actually, it could never end. I mean, this is the thing, people <laughs> want this to be over. It can't end mm. because it's about a new way of thinking. It's about drastically changing everything, calling into question everything. And so unless you have a politician who's really up to the task for that, and actually, as it happens, I don't think even... Even in the Brexit party, in my opinion, I don't think they fully want to grasp that nettle of change. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to sound defeatist, but we've already lost really at Mm. this stage of the game. At this stage of the game, no deal is unlikely. So we have to think about how else moving forward to keep that spirit of democracy alive. Just on no deal quickly, it's really important to recognise that the Yellowhammer documents were leaked this week. I mean, they're no different from the ones we've already seen splashed across the the papers a million times, particularly in the Sunday Times last month. But one thing that really strikes you when reading this is actually, partly it's based on assumptions that we are very unlikely based on things like um, blockages at Dover and Calais, which, you know, both sides of the ports have have made constant reassurances are are unlikely to happen. But also one of the key issues is um, business preparedness. Mm. And this actually relates to the vacillation between no deal and a deal. Because quite understandably, there are a lot of businesses who don't want to hedge their bets. They don't want to commit resources to preparing for no deal when they keep hearing on TV Boris saying, we're going to get a deal, we're going to get a deal. Or they hear the Ramona saying, we're going to get an extension, we're going to revoke Article 50, we're going to have a second referendum. You know, they've made actually quite a reasonable judgment that we don't need to spend money preparing for this. And so the fact that they are then less prepared than they should be then filters into all of the documents. And that is what is then reflected in the scare stories about no deal. So it's a kind of circular process. Whereas if we grasp the nettle of no deal, actually things would probably turn out okay. I I completely agree with that. I, I find the no deal scaremongering just completely bizarre because it's either lies and exaggerations with people saying this is going to happen and there's no proof it will happen. Or it's just clearly proof, not that Brexit is wrong or that leaving the European Union is possible, but that our political class and capitalist class haven't prepared for it. Mm. That's all that's happened. Businesses haven't prepared for it, and that's understandable on some level because they don't know what's happening. That's because of the political class, which hasn't told them what's happening. We know that Philip Hammond, when he was the Ramona Chancellor, purposefully failed to prepare small businesses in particular for the possibility of a no deal. So all the stuff they say, oh, there'll be queues at Dover or there won't be enough of this food and or there'll be too much of that food. <laughs> uh, we won't have the drugs in time. We don't know where to store them. I just see this stuff and I think that's got actually nothing to do with the vote for Brexit. Mm. And that's also got nothing to do with leaving the European Union. That's because of your failures, and in some cases, your conscious, cynical, politicised failures to prepare for this. So I find that such a strange element of the discussion. And I don't feel any fear whatsoever about no deal. And I think don't think anyone else should either. But I think uh, I completely agree with Ella on, on Boris and his unwillingness to have a no deal. I just, I mean, I actually have ever so slightly resigned myself to the 
to the fact that Brexit's not going to happen, which I'm not saying that in a depressed way. I'm actually really happy. I think the first stage of the Brexit revolution has been achieved, <laughs> which is the exposure of the establishment as being completely and utterly rotten to the core, as being undemocratic, aloof, out of touch, technocratic. Parliament has been exposed. The judiciary has been exposed. All those liberals who for the past 50 years have told us they really care for poor people have been exposed as just full of contempt for poor people and working class people and ordinary people who who are uneducated, who they look upon as the most pig ignorant creatures on earth. So that's the first stage has been achieved, which is the exposure of the establishment and and the exposure of the uh, desperate need for change. The second stage of the Brexit revolution, uh, bringing that change about, Mm. is still up for grabs. That's the thing that's still up for debate. Boris is not going to make Brexit happen and every single thing is indicating that he's going to sell out and he's going to come back with a crappy withdrawal agreement, which, as we've pointed out and others have pointed out, the backstop is a very bad part of it, but it's not the only bad part of it. There's so many other bad things too. And I... I'm still sceptical of the Brexit party and and I think the fact that they are currently, as we are speaking, trying their utmost to get a pact with Boris is actually not, is not a really good sign. I mean, I do think in the event of a general election, they need to have some kind of discussions to make sure that they're not stealing each other's votes. But the fact that they are talking about a politicised pact, I think is a problem because I think the tendency towards compromise will come out top in that process. So there's a lot going on which makes me think, well, Brexit's not happening as a policy, as a simple case of exiting the EU. But at the same time, everything else points to Brexit already having had the amazing impact we predicted it would. And that's just a question of how you push that further and further so it creates real tangible change across society. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Spiked podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and have been enjoying our content all week. If you'd like to support us in doing what we do, then the best way to do that is by giving a donation. One-off donations are brilliant, but even better is if you're able to give monthly. Just £5 a month can really go a long way. To give us a donation, just go to spikes-online.com and hit the big red button in the top right corner. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.